Open in your Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 17. And we've been going through the book of Acts. And uh, we are on Paul's second missionary journey. And so, let's see, if we have that map of the second missionary journey, Shane, maybe you can put that up for us. But we are in the second missionary journey, and so going through Macedonia. Last week, we studied uh, Thessalonica, the stop in Thessalonica, and we got some background on the Thessalonica church and, you know, how it got planted and, and all of that. And so that gave us a little, that was very brief, but it gave us insight into it. One of the things that was interesting about that to me is we really didn't get much about Thessalonica. It was very, but yet we have two epistles in the New Testament, you know, First and Second Thessalonians to that church, and those are two of my favorite epistles. If you read, I love First and Second Thessalonians because it gives such a clear explanation about the return of Christ. And in First Thessalonians, he he explains the coming of Christ, and then there seemed to be a little bit of confusion, so he writes another letter to even to clear it up even further, and we get all this awesome information about the return of Jesus and what it's going to look like and what to look for and what has to happen first and all kinds of things like that. So two wonderful epistles, but the planting of that church seemed very small, a small section in Scripture. And then if you, if you look at the information that's there, really, it just looks like they actually had a lot of trouble in Thessalonica. It doesn't look like they had any kind of big fruit. You know, we don't even get a lot of big players. We hear about this one guy named Jason other than that, we don't get anybody's names. We, you know, it just tells us, well, you know, some Greeks believed, uh, not a few of the leading women believed, and that kind of thing. But they had a lot of trouble from the Jews. And so it was kind of this mixed bag, right? They had a little bit of fruit, but then they had also this big problem. There was a riot. They got kicked out of town. You know, Jason basically got sued almost, and it was just this whole thing. And I'm thinking if I'm Paul and I leave there, I'm probably leaving a little bit with mixed feelings, like I, I don't really know that much happened in Thessalonica, and then of course we get First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, and then on the other side of it, you know, centuries later, you go, no, there was a great work there, and it had a lot of fruit. But how many times do you feel, or can we feel like that, where it's like, well, I feel like God's asking me to do this, and I don't really know if there's just a tremendous amount of fruit. You can't always see that, you know. You can't always see from the results. You can't always judge it by the results of. Where, you know, whether God was asking you to do it or not. Sometimes God's asked you to do things and you, you don't always see the immediate fruit that you would love to have or that you would like to have. And so sometimes you're just obedient and you plow and you work and you dig and you, you do what God's asking you to do and you don't get too focused on the fruit of it because if you get too focused on the fruit of it, then you're being led by the fruit and you're not being led by God. And, and sometimes God will ask you to do something that you don't necessarily see the point of it or the fruit of it right away. Sometimes you don't see it right away. And, I mean, I could say that I've been in ministry for a while, and things that I've done in my years, even the beginning of this church, you don't always see the fruit of it right away. And sometimes you ask yourself, what am I doing? What is the point of this? Why, why am I doing this? You know, maybe I should just give up. Maybe I should change directions. Well, if you're led by feelings, if you're led by fruit, if you're led by natural things, you might sometimes would give up and abandon what you're supposed to be doing when really what you ought to be being led by is what God is saying. And so many times I have felt one way, but then I had to go to God and pray, and he said, no, just keep doing this. Keep staying right here. Be faithful. Keep staying right on that 
that track. You know, your feelings are not a good thing to be led by. They're just not. I mean, if you go off, and people will say that sometimes, you know, I just felt so good about it, you know. Just felt so good. Well, yeah, but if you go off of feelings, what do you do then three weeks later or six months later when you don't feel good about it anymore? Well, then you just quit. And and if I and what about in your marriage? How many of you ever felt in love and then a few months later maybe you didn't feel in love? What do you do? Well, you don't go by feelings. You go by something greater than feelings, right? In that case, you go by the vow you made. But it's very important that you you understand this as a believer. There are going to be lots of things in the Christian life that you're asked to do that don't necessarily match your feelings and you don't necessarily see the results in it that you want to. How about going to church? You always feel like going to church? No. No, probably not. I mean, if you come to this church, yeah, you know, you get to hear me preaching and that. That's one thing, but no, I'm kidding. But no, you don't always feel like going to church. But you don't go based on your feelings. What about going to church and not always seeing the fruit in it? Can that happen? Yeah. Can you go to church and feel like, well, I've been going and I don't see the fruit. And I don't know what it's doing in my kids. I don't know what it's doing. I don't know what the point of going is. You know, I'm not seeing things change that I thought would change if I started going to church. Listen, don't base it on that. Base it on what God's asking you to do. And, and obedience to his word and obedience to the voice of God. Why am I saying that? Because all of Paul's missionary journeys were like that. Every place he went, he did not have a revival. Every place he went, he didn't have thousands of people saved. Y'all remember in the beginning of the book of Acts where there was 3,000 people saved? Okay, that happened one time. It wasn't like that again. Everywhere else he went, it was difficult. There were challenges. Sometimes there was fruit. Sometimes there wasn't. And he plowed ahead, and he stayed faithful, and he stayed diligent. Listen, there's... There's a, there's a lot of blessing, there's a lot of harvest on the other side of just being faithful and being obedient when you don't necessarily feel like it or you're not seeing the fruit in it. And if you don't learn that early as a Christian, I'm talking, if you don't learn that early as a Christian to bypass your feelings, bypass, because what does the scripture say? It says the, that the, the just shall live by faith, that we walk by faith and not by sight. And what he's saying is a lot of times what you're seeing, your sight, could tell you something completely different than what you ought to be doing. You know, if I just look at it, look at things, I could go, well, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah, but the just don't live by what they're seeing. The just don't live by sight. They live by faith in the Son of God. So Paul had that faith, and as he's going on these missionary journeys, he goes, yeah, I may go here, have some fruit. I may go to the next one, have some fruit. Then I may go to three cities and have no fruit. And that was just, that was part of this, okay? So you don't even see a tremendous amount of fruit in Thessalonica in the beginning, yet we know that church ended up being very, very powerful. So we're leaving Thessalonica now, Acts chapter 17, 10. I'm going to read the whole section first, and then we're going to go through it slowly and break it down a little bit. Okay, so Acts 17, 10 through 14. They're leaving Thessalonica. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So this is all we have. This is just four verses about this, the next city called Berea. And we don't have uh, any, any more information about Berea other than just these four short verses. But it seemed like they had some fruit there. Okay, so let's break it down, each verse. Number one, the brothers immediately, this is verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So here again, we have the same strategy that we've been seeing over and over again, right? We talked about this last week. Paul would go into a city. And what? Y'all could probably say it by now if you've been coming. He would go into a city. He would find the Jewish synagogue. He would go in and he would begin to reason with these believing Jews. And he would say, look, you believe in the Old Testament. You believe in Yahweh. The Old Testament prophesies about a Messiah. Well, Jesus was the Messiah. Let me prove it to you from the scriptures. So that was his strategy. Even though, you know, you got to kind of scratch your head and wonder because it doesn't seem like... It always works out too well for Paul with this strategy. But that's where he starts. He starts with the Jewish synagogue and he goes uh, from there. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Whatever that means. Not exactly sure what that means. More noble in the sense that they didn't riot maybe (laughs) immediately. That was probably helpful. More noble, maybe just maybe that, that quality of being open, being, being open and, and having a heart that could hear the word of God, a heart that was open towards the word of God. So these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And then we get some information kind of why. It says they received the word with all eagerness. In other words, there was a hunger there. There was a hunger for the word of God. And, you know, I've seen this in my time in ministry of preaching the Word, what it feels like to preach to people that are hungry for the Word and to preach to people who are not hungry for the Word. I've, I've certainly felt that experience. You've probably felt that experience in your own life. Have you ever tried to give advice to somebody and somebody who's open to advice and somebody who's closed up to advice? You might as well just zip it because you're just talking to a brick wall. If, they, if they're closed, it doesn't matter how good what you have to say is, if they're close to it, you're not getting through. You're just blowing hot air. You're not, there's, no, there's nothing going to be accomplished through it. Well, it's the same with the Word. And I'm going to show you that in a minute from this parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. But the Word of God is restricted in its effectiveness based on the hearer, based on the heart of the hearer. That is why in any church service, no two people are going to receive the word just alike. In any church service, the, the word of God may be there to change your life, and it may change and impact one person and another person. It just bounces off like it was nothing. They're yawning, looking at their watch, looking at their phone, getting up to go grab coffee, getting up to go to the bathroom. The word of God's having no effect on them because their heart, for, for whatever reason, their heart is not in a condition to receive that word. And, you know, when I was young, this didn't make any difference to me. It didn't make any difference if a person wanted to hear what I had to say or not. <laughs> my advice was good. My opinion was good. And whether you wanted to hear it or not, it was going to happen one way or another. And uh, even though you could tell people were closed off, 
you know, you, th- you just think, well, if I just explain it just right and I pry hard enough, I'm going to get it in there and it'll get through. But then as I got older, some of you are laughing because you already know, when you get older, you realize, no, if that door's not open, I'm not wasting my time. I'm not wasting my breath. If you don't want to hear what I have to say, go live with the consequences of it. It doesn't make me any difference. And I'm not even sure that's the right attitude, but that's how you feel sometimes. But the point is that it's the same way when you preach. When you preach, you have people that are different places. Even in this just small room tonight, everybody's at a different place. In their receptiveness of the word, in their faith in the word, in their, we'll use the word he used here, eagerness. Eagerness versus what? Eagerness versus apathy. Eagerness versus complacency. Eagerness versus indifference. See, the way that you approach the word depends on what you get out of it. And you could hear, the literally, you could hear the most anointed, best preacher ever with the most revelation possible and get absolutely nothing out of it, depending on your heart. How do I know? Because they did it to Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, you're never going to get more revelation, never going to get more anointing, never going to get more power attached, and yet he would preach sermons, and there were hard hearts in that crowd that would condemn him, rebuke him, reject him over it. So the word, nothing wrong with the word, nothing wrong with how it was being delivered. That wasn't the problem. The problem was on the heart, on the soil end, as this parable is going to tell us. So, but before we get to the parable, just continuing to read this. He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. You might find, some people might find that strange to hear. Like, what was it about Thessalonica and Berea? What was the difference? You're telling me you had a, a group in Thessalonica that all of them, just, or most of them, their heart was hard. Then you go to Thessalonica and just most of them are open to the gospel just as a group. They're just more open. Well, I mean, I've been to to states, cities, even countries that are like that. I, I mean, in Alexandria, for example, there's a spiritual climate. And, and I could talk to you about what makes that up. You know, we have certain very heavy influences in this city, whether you look at Catholic, Baptist, you look at the roots, you look at the, where everything comes from, the, you look at uh, church splits, Division in churches, you look at the, a lot of things that play into it. People that have been saturated with the word for generation after generation, but they never were doers of the word, and so they became immune to it. You could look at a lot of different factors, and based on that, you could say there's a certain climate in Alexandria for, towards the word that's not necessarily the same when you go somewhere else. I've been to other countries, for example, South American countries, for example, where they just didn't have that, and you bring the word, and it's like a sponge. It's like you could say, you could say the littlest thing. Just, just read a couple verses, and people are crying, just ready for more, just hungry, eager. Well, that's a different climate, isn't it? It's, it's a whole different climate. And everywhere you go, it just seemed like the, all the people were like that. And after being in Alexandria, ministering in a while, same thing. You start to get a feel for this is the climate. In the area, I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for a while. I went to college in Tulsa. Same thing. I could describe the climate that was in Tulsa. In Tulsa, you have the biggest churches in the world. You got ten thousand, twelve thousand member churches, fifteen thousand member churches. People that you know went to church, 
and it was almost like they went to a Disney World. You know, when they show up, I mean, between the gyms and the, and the lights and the campuses and that just like you go, it's like going to Disney World and that's how they're raised. In church. Well, that creates a certain kind of Christian that creates a certain kind of climate. Not even saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it creates a climate. And that's what you see here. Why is that important? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons, even if you're not a minister, okay, but you're just a Christian. You're going to, re- you're going to recognize this. You're going to recognize a group of people that maybe they're open to the gospel. And when they're open to the gospel, you need to go through that door. You need to, you need to take that advantage. Maybe God's opening that door for you in, at your work or in your family or in your friend group. And then you may have another group, and I think people make mistakes with this. I think uh, spouses can make mistakes with it. I think parents can make mistakes when that door is not closing. You're just trying to shove it in. I'm going to pry it open and shove it in. Whatever it takes, I'm going to shove it in. Well, that turns people off to the gospel as well. So there's wisdom here. And part of it is in knowing, is the ground ready? Is the, is the soil ready for the word? So, you know, for example, um, most of the time I go anywhere outside of the church, I never, ever, 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 ever try on purpose to let anybody know that I'm a pastor. I don't like to do it because... The moment they find out that I'm a pastor is one of two reactions. One, all of a sudden they get super holy and spiritual. <laughs> and now, I mean, I'll have people, look, this just happened the other day. My son even laughed. He said something to me about it because we were somewhere and they, somebody found out I was a pastor. And they said, oh, yeah, man. And we started talking. I was like, yeah, I, I go to church a lot, man. I do. I go to church a lot. I'm like, that's just a weird thing to say. You know, I just, but they find out. And then on the other end, you know, then on the other side, they start, if they're not a Christian or they don't have any religion, then they start feeling insecure and bad. And, oh, man, I, you know, I was smoking when you came up or I already cussed five times, you know, since we've been talking. And now I just find out you're a pastor, you know, and then it's weird. So I don't like people to know I'm a pastor. I just want to talk to them first and to find out, you know, let, let, let it be natural. Let it, let it find out and use that, use that wisdom. But so here it says that... These were more noble. These were more noble than at Thessalonica. That's a comment about the character of their heart and how open they were to the word. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they, they didn't just take Paul at his word, but they dove in to the word. They pressed in. They fought to, to find it out, to study it. And so this is a different type of soil. This is not what he found in Thessalonica at all. So let's look at what Jesus said about this. This is a parable, Matthew 13, 18. And many of you know it. You're very familiar. It's the parable of the sower, parable of the seed and the soil. This was the parable that Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the parables. You've got to understand this one first. This was the foundation to all the other parables. And it's a long one, so we're not going to read it all tonight. Basically, he gives the parable in the first part of the chapter, and he explains that there's four types of soil. And then in verse 18, he explains the parable, and that's the part we're going to read, verse 18, to just get the explanation. So he says, uh, the parable is sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, this is what was sown along the path. So this was the first type of soil. The path, stony ground, the good ground, things like that. So 
He said, there's, there's four things that can happen when the word is sown. Number one, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. You ever been there? You ever heard preaching? And you're like, I don't understand what he's talking about. Well, if you don't understand it, it's not doing you any good. If you don't understand it, it's not taking root. So first thing that has to happen is it has to be understanding. This is why I believe preaching ought to be really clear. It ought to be really plain. It ought to be really simple. And if it's, if it's not, then you need to go back and try to explain it and get it to where it's more simple and it's more clear. It shouldn't be super complicated. That's why, you know, I think the average person of average intelligence ought to be able to walk in the church and understand. You don't need a theologi- theological degree. You don't need to have some big background. You don't have to be in church your whole life. Like, you should come in and hear the Scripture. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to know big words like, you know, hermeneutics and all of that. You don't need to know all that. You just need to be able to hear the word plainly and understand it. That's how Jesus was. That's how the apostles were. They were simple men. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. You know, they, they worked in agriculture. That, they were normal people. Okay, and that's, that's, that's how I grew up, and that's how, the kind of people I like to be around, and that's how I am. And I, if anybody tries to make it where it's just so complicated and you can't, I don't think that, that it has to be that way. So first of all, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and they do not understand it, this is the first obstacle. Okay? If there's no understanding, if it's, if it's not clear, it's not going to take root. And it's not going to do any work in anybody's life. This is what was sown along the path. Verse 20, as far as what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in and of himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, then immediately he falls away. Have you ever seen anybody like that? Maybe you've ever experienced this in your own life. Basically, it's, it's this. This is the person who gets really excited. First, you know, like a flash in the pan. It's quick. They hear the word and they go, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live. I'm going to change everything. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to be a new person. I'm going to start leading my family in the right direction. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. Maybe there's tears. Maybe they're on their knees. A lot of emotion involved. Very, very, very excited about it. But he says, there's that emotion. There's that excitement. But guess what? That quickly burns out because it doesn't ever take real root. It doesn't ever take real root. Now, there's a lot of people when they feel that and they they get that initial burst of excitement and joy, if someone comes along and helps them nurture that and helps them get rooted and planted, then it will last. But he's talking about the danger of just being emotionally uh, involved and emotionally committed because maybe you were in a service where the worship was good and the sermon was good and it it just moved you and you're like, I'm going to do that. But then you left out and you didn't make any changes. You didn't add any habits to your life. Well, guess what? That emotion burns out very quick because emotion is like a fuel. And you burn through it very quick. And when it's gone, it's gone. If there's nothing else, that's all you've got. And you run out and you crash and burn. So it's not a good, it's not a good fuel for the gospel or for living the Christian life. I like to say it this way. I mean... It's fantastic when the emotion is there, isn't it? I mean, you know, Sunday, I felt emotional Sunday. You know, we're worshiping, and it's, it's fantastic when the feelings are there and the emotions are there. But I look at it just like a bonus. If it's there, awesome. But I'm prepared and ready to live and serve the Christian life with or without it. In other words, if I don't, 
if I'm feeling dry, if I'm feeling, you know, I want to quit, I'm still getting up to pray, still reading the Word, still showing up to church. I don't, I don't need the emotion to do it. And I love it when the emotion is there. But when it's not, it's just like marriage as far as I'm concerned. You know, again, I'm committed. I'm here. We're working on this. Whether I feel like it, whether I don't. And if I feel like it, great. I'm glad when I do. That, that should be that way. That should be the most of the time. But if I don't, I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> All right? And I don't know if a lot of people think like that or not. Because I, I don't think they do. Because I talk to them and go, well, I fell out of love. I go, what difference does that make? I mean... I fell out of love. Well, so? Did you, was that in the vows? I didn't read that. I'll do all this as long as I'm still in love. The moment I fall out of love, I'm leaving your butt. If anybody ever said that at the altar, you better turn around and walk away. I wouldn't marry him, I'll tell you that. I, no, I, well, I fell out of love. So? I mean, fall back in love. Do, do the work to fall back in love. I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You made a vow. Stick with it. You know, and that's, but that's how people do God, too. You, do, you see, if we live in a culture where the divorce rate is through the roof, don't think for one, people, for one second if people are walking out on their spouse that they're not going to walk out on God. I mean, if you can't be committed to, to a person in a relationship and to a marriage through difficult times, same thing with God. You're going you're gonna to walk away from God, too. And that's, that's exactly what he's describing here. He said they got excited. They felt a lot of emotion. They made a lot of big commitments, made a lot of big plans in the beginning. And then it burned out. So he said as far as what was sown on the rocky ground, they hear the word immediately, receive it with joy. But it has no root and endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, then immediately falls away. In other words, the moment they find out that this is a little bit more difficult than I realized. Moment there was any trouble, any difficulty, I go, whoa, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I thought when I started serving God, everything was going to get better. I didn't realize there was going to be difficulty, you know, maybe this isn't for me. And they bow out. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the cares of the world, that's a big one right now. This is big right now. This is, this is choking the church right now. I mean, this is massive. This is an enormous problem in the church right now is the spirit of this world that is choking the life out of people because they're so, they've given themselves over to, they've immersed themselves in the, wor- in the world so much. And he says, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, in this case, the seed is planted, it takes root, and it actually does grow. It actually does grow. It doesn't die. It just doesn't ever produce any fruit. You ever had a plant or bush like that in your life, in your yard? I have. I had, when I moved to my first house, uh, no, what my first house, but it was another house. The previous owner had planted a pomegranate tree. I didn't even know pomegranates would grow uh, in Louisiana. Somebody told me if they had all the right things, they would produce pomegranates. But this one never produced the first thing. And I think because it was planted under a tree, and so it was in the shade all the time. It never produced the first pomegranate. I never had, never had one. And look, they could have been playing a joke on me. Maybe pomegranates don't even grow in Louisiana. I don't know. I'm just thinking about that now. But anyway, it never produced pomegranates. And, 
But it, but it was a big bush. I mean, it was actually enormous. It took me a while to figure out what it was, but it never produced fruit. I've had other things like that that just they didn't have the right conditions. They weren't in the, sun, right, the right amount of sunlight or they weren't getting the right amount of water. And the bush, the tree was big. It, was, it looked healthy, had a lot of leaves, but it never produced any fruit because it didn't have the right conditions. And so that's what he's describing here. He says, this one here is the word. And they, they stand alongside. In other words, they got a nice trunk. They got leaves. So they're, they're a Christian. They're, they're living the Christian life. But there's no real fruit in their life. They're just kind of flatlined. And they're just going through the motions. And yeah, they're here. And, and they're hearing the word. And they're, they're singing the songs. And they're, they're doing that. But they're not really producing any real fruit for the kingdom. There's no, there's no impact. There's no punch. There's no power to their life or what they're doing. There's no impact. There's no influence for the kingdom in their life. He said it's not that they're not saved. Apparently, they, they stayed rooted and all that. There's just no fruit. There's no fruit. Why? Because it was something's choking it out. And what I have found is that if you remove what's choking it out, then it'll, produce, it'll go on and produce fruit just fine. A lot of Christians like that. A lot of Christians that have things in their life. When this is talked about in Hebrews 12, he talks about sins and weights that are holding you down so you can't run your race like you should. Like you got a backpack on with weights and you're trying to run the race and you can't do it. He said you need to lay aside the weights, lay aside the sin, then you'll be effective. There's a lot of Christians that need to do that, and we all have to do that. You know, the Bible calls that pruning, just pruning and cutting things back to make sure that you're producing maximum fruit. Okay, last group. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, he understands it, and he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So he says, in this category, even in this category, you have variations. You have a group that depending on how much of the word they, and what they do with it, and how they live their life, and the habits, they, all, all the things that are involved in being a Christian, he said some of them produce 30-fold return. So in other words, every Christian is not going to re- produce the same amount of fruit. It's, it's going to depend on what you do. This is why I don't like a lot of teaching that, you know, it puts it all on God. It takes it all off of us, and he puts it all on God. And he's like, oh, you don't have to do anything. It's all by his grace. It's all on him. It's whatever he wants to do in your life. No, that's not how the Bible talks about it. it, it a lot of it does depend on what you do with what he's given you. I mean, that's the whole parable of, that Jesus gives of the faithful steward when he comes back and he asks for an account. He says, hey, I gave you these talents. What would you do with it? He doesn't say, I came and, you know, I did all the work for you and it was my grace and so it doesn't matter anyway. No, he comes back. He says, I gave you this. What did you do with it? In other words, he wants an accounting of what you did with your life. That's why you get some here that bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. You know, I have a, a few years, a couple years ago, I had a little garden at my house and I planted a bunch of jalapeno plants. And they didn't all do the same. I mean, one of them was short and had a few, and the other one was up here big and had a bunch. I don't, and I'm sure it was something I did wrong. I'm not sure what. But they didn't all produce the same. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, depending on what you do with the word that was given you and the decisions you make and the, and the habits you have in your life, he said, You're gonna, some are going to produce 30 for the kingdom, some are going to produce 60-fold, and some are going to produce 100-fold return. 
So he's describing this process of how the Word works. Every one of us are in this room tonight because at some point, the seed of the Word of God came into our life, and it took root. And every one of us fall into one of these four categories. See, the problem wasn't with the seed, okay? The problem wasn't with the sower. He doesn't blame the sower even for throwing it on the path or in the stony ground. Or he, the, the seed was there. The sower was there. That's not the issue. The issue is the soil. And you are the soil. I am the soil. The good news is, is that you're not locked in to whatever type of soil you find yourself in. If, if you go, man, you're reading this and you go, man, I'm, I'm the stony ground. I know you hit me. That's my number. That's me. Well, good news is, is that with God's help, you can transition to the good soil. You can do that. That's a decision you can make of how you're going to receive the word. Now, why are we getting into all that? Well, that, that gives us explanation of what's going on in verse 11 in Acts chapter 17. Let me read it again. He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, that gives us an idea of what he's talking about. It was good soil. It was good ground. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so they had some good fruit there. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Again, have you seen this pattern before? This is an ongoing problem on, this, on these missionary journeys. Paul would minister at one place. The Jews would get stirred up. They would riot. They would cause problems. And then so he goes, you know what? We're leaving this town. And he'd go to the next one, and they'd start having some fruit. And then those Jews from the previous town would travel there and show up and go, don't listen to these guys, and they'd start showing up causing problems. But you're going to see in just a minute, <laughs> I think Paul outsmarted them. I'm not sure. But there's something I read here that makes me go, all right, I think Paul finally figured out a way to deal with this problem. Uh, and something happens here that we hadn't seen before. So they came there too. They were agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way. But Silas and Timothy remained there behind. And my question when I read that was, well, why is it that, Paul, why is it that Timothy and Silas were able to, to stay behind if there's a riot and they're causing problems, what, what benefit is it going to be for, for Timothy and Silas to stay behind? In other words, if, if Paul, Timothy, Timothy, and Silas all show up together and they're all in the synagogue and they're all proclaiming the gospel, then when Paul leaves, they're just going to give Timothy and Silas a hard time. Well, what good is that going to do? They're just going to, Timothy and Silas aren't going to have any fruit there because these guys are just as hard at them as they were at, at Paul. So some... Some uh, theologians had speculated maybe this was the point where Paul started to change his strategy that maybe, and we don't see this uh, from the word specifically, so this is just speculation, but maybe Silas and Timothy were not involved right at first. They were more in the shadows. 
So that Paul's up front. He's the big guy. He's causing the ruckus. They cause the problem. Okay, fine. You ran me out of town. And he heads on to the next one. Meanwhile, Timothy and Silas are off in the crowd like everybody else. And they kind of hang around. And they stay behind from the shadows. And then they begin to work with those people that had believed. They begin to disciple them and train them up. Which is why you see fruit remaining there. These guys stayed behind and they did the work. Whatever the issue was, whatever happened, we don't know for sure. But something switched in the strategy because this, this is the first time we really read about this happening that way. So Paul left, and then Silas and Timothy would stay behind. And when things died down, then they would they begin to go in and begin to disciple and meet and talk to the people that had responded. And, and they begin to build a church right there in Berea, just like they did in other cities as well. And so I don't know if that was exactly how it happened or not, but that would be... That seemed to be what was going on, and it certainly would be a good strategy because Paul could, could start things rolling, and then he could move on, and then he would leave people behind to sort of build the church and do the discipleship without all the problems and issues going on the same way that it was. Another question I had when I was reading this is, you know, why, why don't we have a letter to the Bereans? Because it seems like there was a lot of fruit in Berea, and so in the epistles, you know, we, we get all these letters, letter to the Thessalonians, letter to the Galatians, letter to the Philippians, all these places where he planted, uh, where he planted churches and had a lot of fruit. Then later you get a letter to them. So you would think in the epistles that we would have a letter to the Bereans, right? That Paul, there would be an epistle in the New Testament to the Bereans. We don't have that. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't one written. But we just, either it's never been found, it's never been recovered, or God just never wanted it in the New Testament for whatever reason. Or maybe there wasn't a letter written. We don't really know for sure. But we do know that there are letters written by Paul that we don't have because he mentions them specifically himself. In Colossians 4.16, he writes to the Colossians and he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Well, we don't have a letter in the New Testament from Laodicea. We know the Laodicean church, but there's no record of a letter to them other than this. Paul says he wrote one, but that it was never found. It's never been found. And so we know there are letters he wrote that we don't have. Um, and But this was the practice also that these letters would be passed around. So... When an epistle was written, you, and you can see from the map when you saw it earlier that these places are close to each other and they're kind of in an order. And so what they would do is the churches, they were all very connected. Even though they were in different cities, Paul would travel. They would send people. They would send offerings to one another. And they would send the letters. And so the letters would pass around and the Thessalonians would read the letter from the Philippians. And the Philippians would read the letter from Corinth. And it was like that. So that could be, too, that, you know, he knew that the other letters he had written were going to be passed around. Or it could be that he wrote a letter and we just never found it. We don't, we don't have it. We don't have a record of it. My, my guess, my instinct would be that he did write a letter to the Bereans because that, that was his pattern. You know, if he went to a city and he had fruit, and, and you just see his cart and his compassion, he would go back and visit these places over and over again. You know, he, over and over again, he would go back and visit these churches and check on them and, 
and he would write these letters to encourage them. And just there's no reason why he wouldn't have written a letter to the Bereans. But we don't have that letter, and we don't have record of it. But my guess is that he, he did. We just we don't have it. Uh, we also know that the fruit in Berea seemed to grow, and there seemed to be results from it because in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, there's a guy named Sopater, and they call him Sopater the Berean, traveled with Paul on future trips. So definitely he made some connections there and relationships, and this one guy from Berea at least traveled with Paul on some of his other missionary journeys. Okay, so what can we learn from this journey to Berea. First of all, I want you to see, we could, there's so many things we could learn, but I just want to point out three quick things and then we're going to be done tonight. The first thing you need to know is it really wasn't Paul or it really wasn't just Paul. And, and this is one of the things you learn as you read through the book of Acts and as you read the epistles, how, Paul is always mentioning someone else, other people that are helping him, Tim, whether it's Timothy, Silas, Jason, you know, all these guys over and over again that they're helping, they're, they're doing. He had tremendous help all along the way. And a lot of times these people are only listed as just brothers and the brothers Help did this, saved me, prayed for us, lowered us over the wall in a basket. You know, all these people that were involved. And this is always the case. But see, a lot of times, for a lot of Christians, Paul is like, the, is like one of the heroes of our faith. And he, and he should be. The man was phenomenal and, and all that credit, you know, goes to him, whatever. But this is always the case that it's like one person is at the top. And they kind of get all the credit. And then there's all these other people under them that it could have never happened without all those other people. With all these other people doing the will of God, fulfilling their part. And you see how much Paul depended on them because when one of them left him or abandoned it, man, he complains about it. He writes about it in his letters. Man, they left me. They left me high and dry. You know, that one coppersmith guy, I can't remember his name, he talks about in there. He's like, they left me, you know, uh, they've all abandoned me, and it's just me alone by my. He's upset about it because he needed them. He depended on them. You know, what would have happened if Paul left and he didn't have Silas and Timothy to leave behind in Berea to build the church? And nobody thinks about it. Like, nobody talks about how great, you know, Silas and Timothy and that, their, their role in planting. No, it's Paul planted that church. But the reality is Paul wasn't planting these churches by himself. And the reason I think that's important is because even in modern day, we can think like that. You know, oh, this person is the pastor, or, oh, this big minister, or this big person, oh, they built this. It's never the case. It's never the case that one person is out just doing amazing things, and there's no one behind the scenes, or there's no other people that are doing stuff. I mean, our church, for example, I mean, we have our staff. We have my wife. We have Brandon and Jamie. We have people on, on staff that are working. There's people tonight, volunteers in kids' ministry and youth and media on the worship team. You know, on, on any given Sunday, there's going to be, you know, 50-plus people that are volunteering to make ministry happen at One Life. And yet people might think, oh, well, you know, Pastor Josh did this or Pastor Josh preached the sermon. Yeah, but without everybody involved, it would never happen the way that it was supposed to happen. And the reason I think that it's crucial is because if you, 
have the mentality where you look at it like, oh, it's one guy at the top or whatever, then it, it minimizes your role and your significance. And people can tend to think, well, if I don't really do my part, it's not that big a deal because, you know, they're up there doing theirs and, and it's going to happen with or without me. Yeah, but if everybody thought like you, it wouldn't. Because, and not you, I'm not saying, but anybody who thinks like that, if, if everybody thought like that, it wouldn't happen. Because it requires a huge amount of sacrifice. And if, my goodness, if we had to pay every person that did what they do as volunteers, the church could never survive. I mean, there's so many people that give of their time and sacrifice of their time. I'm talking hours every week to make sure that the kingdom of God goes forward. In other words, like they've latched on to the vision that God's given us as a church. Not the vision God's given me. The vision that God's given us. One life, the body of Christ. They've latched onto it and they see their part in it and they go, you know what? I can't do everything, but I'm going to do my part. And see, the Bible says that God actually has placed people in the body. He's placed individuals. He's placed people in the body. And it doesn't have to be something great. It doesn't have to be something significant. I mean, our volunteers in the kids ministry, they volunteer once a month on, on a Sunday, once a month on a Wednesday that may not seem like a lot. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. And man, if somebody can't follow through or can't do it, it leaves a hole. And, it's, and somebody else has to step up and fill it. And it's, so the body has to work together to do what we do. And so it wasn't just Paul that was doing these churches. Paul could have never done this by himself. That's why he didn't travel alone. Sometimes Paul had three, four, five, six people traveling with him because there was so much to do. He couldn't do it by himself. And I just, I want you to understand that. I think everyone knows that and understands that about our church. But this church is, this church is a lot bigger than me. It's a lot bigger than the pastor, whoever it would be, whether it was me or someone else. It's a lot bigger than that. The, the ch uh, any church, to really reach people, it's going to have to go beyond just what one person can do. And it takes a team of people that have the vision. It takes a body that latches on to the vision. And it's not, you know, a church really starts to get healthy when the people that attend, it's not just, oh, I'm an attender. You know, in other words, I'm going to attend church today and I'm going to listen to the sermon. I'm going to preach and I'm going to leave and go home. And I, in other words, I went to church today. And that's the mentality. A church really starts to get healthy when it, when the people that are coming realize, wait, this is my church, and I have something to do with how the service goes today. I have something to do with how the people were ministered to. If, if all you do is come in and show up and you just say, you know what, I'm going to worship my heart out, and I'm going to pray during worship. I'm going to pray for the service. I'm going to pray for people that are in here that maybe are sinners and lost and need Jesus. I'm going to pray for pastor. I'm going to pray for the worship team. Just that is way different than just coming as an attender, you know. So the body, you know, this is a family. This, our church is, a, is, a, is like a big family, and everybody has their little part to, to do. And you might think it's small, and that's fine. But the small is better than, you know, nothing at all. So it's very important. Uh, secondly, notice that the majority typically do not respond. In other words, there was a lot of people, and... 
they don't all respond. Actually, only a small people, a, a small group responds. This is almost in every city that he goes to. I mentioned in Acts chapter 2 earlier how there was 3,000 people saved on one day, but that was the exception. That was like a one, that wasn't ongoing. That was the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit got poured out. Paul, pre- and man, 3,000 got saved. 3,000 got baptized. But you don't see that anywhere else in the book of Acts. Like after that, it's this hard work going into cities. Preaching the word. Somebody, you know, kicked us out. Now I got stoned. Now he's arrested. Now we're back. And out of the hundreds and out of the thousands, man, only ten people gave their life to the Lord. We're going to leave Paul, we're going to leave Silas and Timothy behind to disciple them. I got to go on to the next city. That was the church planting. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't these big, huge revivals like we would want to see. It wasn't that. It was a tremendous amount of work, and it took a lot of grit to do it. And if you think about it, it's what we're doing here. It's what we're doing in Alexandria. I mean, 12 years ago when we started this church, there was nothing. It wasn't, there wasn't even a church. There was five people at the Holiday Inn Express that were starting. That was it. And it hasn't just been all victories. There's been a lot of setbacks, a lot of work. Get over this, overcome this. And, you know, a lot of stories we could say. And I'm just saying that's, that is the Christian life. It's not all victories. It's not, you know as we would want it to be. It's not always 3,000 saved in a day. More likely, often, the majority do not respond. This is even what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So that typically is more how it goes. Why am I mentioning that? Well, because again, in planting this church, we're actually uh, identifying with Paul and what Paul was doing. You know, it was a long time ago, he's planting churches, but people are still planting churches. And this thing is just going on for decade after decade, century after century. That's what we're doing. We're planting a church in this city. It's planted at this point. Now, Now we're growing a church at this point. But we're involved in that process. And, you know, I'm just saying it's not, it's not always that people just by the hundreds, just jump on board with what's happening. Sometimes it's slow, and it's steady, and it's few, and that's part of it. That's, that's part, of, part of it, and you just stay faithful, and you'll stay obedient, and you keep working, and you keep plowing, and you do it until the day you stand before the Lord, and you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And the final thing that, I want, that we learn from Paul's journey is, yes, so many do not respond, but the few that do respond are worth it all. They're, they're worth everything. They were worth it to Paul. They were worth it to Jesus to die for. The, the ones that do respond, that's who we're after. We're not worried about the people that don't respond. Not that we're not worried for them, but we pray for them. We hope they come to the Lord, all that. But I don't focus on that. The fact is there are a lot of people that do respond. And the ones that do, man, we pastor, we pray, we disciple, we fight for, we do whatever we can do. They are worth it. You know, even Jesus said that. He'd leave the 99 to go after the one. You know, that was his mindset. No, everybody doesn't respond. But the ones that do, man, they are precious. They are valuable to God. Amen.